Recovery Elevator, episode 63. All right. This, this really has, this has to stop. This is over. I can't do this anymore. And I've been sober ever since. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for one year, seven months, and three weeks. On today's podcast, we've got Kelly. She's from the Pacific Northwest. She's 36 years old, and she's been sober since June of 2015. The topic of today's podcast is Johnny Manziel. He's a professional football player. Well, was a professional football player. He's a free agent now. But in 2014, he was the 22nd overall pick for the Cleveland Browns. His freshman year in college, he became the first freshman to win the Heisman Trophy Award. Watching this guy play football at Texas A&M, which is in the SEC, let me tell you, was like watching a gentleman run around little kids. He was unstoppable. People were saying this was going to be a sure bet, the best quarterback we have ever seen. Fast forward two years to 2016, he's a free agent. Now, before we go any further, let's talk about something that I've said in many podcasts. Listen to the similarities and not the differences. You might not even like the NFL, but doesn't matter. Focus on the similarities here. This is basically a person in the national spotlight where everybody has a front row seat watching his downfall, his demise. This disease, this progressive disease, take its course. And honestly, it's painful to watch. My ears first perked about Johnny Manziel and his alcoholism two years ago at the NFL draft when he was picked 22nd overall by the Cleveland Browns. I read an article that Johnny Manziel was sleeping underneath a table skirt during the draft. That is correct. Other players that were also going to be drafted in the first round were signing autographs to kids, to fans, to other adults. Those other players, they were living their dreams. That's like the best weekend of their life. You're not sitting there at home wondering if you're going to get drafted at all. You're there. You're probably going to go in the first or second round. Johnny Menzel, instead of signing autographs, being in the limelight and having just a blast living your lifelong dream, he's sleeping underneath a tablecloth. I heard that and I was like, man, I could see myself doing that. I can see myself going out the night before the NFL draft partying so hard and not being able to shut it down knowing the next day I had a lot of responsibilities. Right then, without really knowing much of Johnny Manziel at all, besides being him being a really good football player, I was like, hmm, that guy might have a drinking problem. The media portrays Johnny Manziel as simply a party boy, a kid who can't grow up. The media shows photos of him partying in Vegas the day after a game, or when he's supposed to be at a game. The media is classifying him as simply immature. But finally, I read an article on Bleacher Report that's doing some proper reporting. They're taking more of a clinical view on his case instead of an immature view. Yes, Johnny Manziel is 23 years old, but in my opinion, he's not growing out of this. In fact, it's a progression, as we know, and it's only going in one direction, and that's down. Being an alcoholic and watching his life with all of the reports, the photos, the pictures, it looks so painful. If it looks like he's having any fun, I guarantee you he's not. He's had a wrecked Mercedes-Benz, $100,000 worth of damage to a rental property, and a very angry landlord. He might have been in a fight with a lover that went beyond harsh words. Colleen Crowley, his ex-girlfriend, now has a protective order against him. His agent thankfully made true on his promise and dropped him. This last weekend, there were photos online of him hanging out and grooving in a ball pit at Coachella. And I could see that look on his face in that ball pit. 
Well, most of my memories in ball pits were at McDonald's and Burger King when I was under 10 years old, but apparently they have ball pits at Coachella. Might have to check that out while sober, but I saw the look on his face, and it just looked painful. He had the, I'm going to figure this out look. And I think athletes have an especially difficult time to get sober just due to their coaching. Being an athlete myself, well, I'm going to lightly lump myself in that category. We're always taught that we can do this. Get back in there and figure it out. Get back in there and work harder. Lift more weights. Train harder. And that mentality nearly took me to the grave. I just needed to work harder to find a way that I could drink like a normal person. One thing that I didn't take away from playing sports all those years was asking help from coaches. Damn it. So it is refreshing after seeing way too many columns that read something like this. This kid just doesn't get it. He needs to grow up. Finally, we're reading a column about his clinical condition. The media have been asking Johnny Menzel, do you really want to be an NFL quarterback? His answer is, yeah, of course. I want to follow my lifelong dream, and I really want to play in the NFL. Apparently, he also really wants to keep partying and drinking. And those two things, they don't go together. From the outside looking in, Johnny's got a fairly vocal addiction in his mind lying to him in his own voice. He's like, dude, Johnny, it's Coachella. You're an NFL free agent. You should be parting your ass off in the ball pit. We'll get back to the training field tomorrow, throw some footballs around. Yeah, and the Denver Broncos are going to pick us up. There's a great paragraph in this article that I'm going to read verbatim. It says, addiction is a disease of the will. It hijacks the decision-making process. Addiction spins webs of rationalization, encourages short-term solutions, and tricks you into not just making terrible decisions, but defending them to others and often yourself. Keyword yourself on that. I think I would change the very first line where it says, addiction is a disease of the will. I would change that to addiction is a disease of the mind. When I first read that, I thought it was going to explain that people with weak wills can't stop drinking, but no, the article steered back on the proper course, and we're good. Celebrity crisis expert Jack DeShower commented how Manziel could revive his NFL career, but the absolute only chance that Johnny Manziel has at a professional football career at this point would be to enter an inpatient rehabilitation program, a serious one, today, and stay there, whether it's 30-day or 90-day, and then complete it. Oh yeah, and after that, Johnny, you gotta stay sober. Last year, in 2015, Johnny actually did a 30-day stay in a rehab facility. And I think it was only within two months that there was photos of him online drinking beers. And his answer, well, hey, it's only one or two beers. But then the disease kicked in, wrecked Mercedes-Benz, destroying rental properties, getting cut from the Cleveland Browns, your agent dumps you. And right now, Johnny, you've got about a 1% chance of making an NFL roster next year. And Johnny, I'm on your team, man. I'm rooting for you. But I'm rooting for you to go to rehab first and then come play for the Denver Broncos. I'm a huge Broncos fan. I want you. But I want a sober Johnny. In fact, Johnny, if anybody knows Johnny, let's do an interview. Yeah, your football accolades are cool. I still wish I could run a sub 540, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the booze. But right now, Johnny, your chances are slim. Peyton Manning at 50 has a better chance of playing in the NFL. Tim Tebow even has a better chance than you making it back in the NFL. Hell, myself, five foot nine slow with two shoulder surgeries has a better chance than you do right now of making it back to the NFL. Okay, I'll come clean. I said make it back to the NFL. I've never played in the NFL. But I'm on your team. You got to reach out for help. You can't do this alone. Watching Johnny Manziel's downfall has been tough. 
But recently, it's refreshing to see articles written like this one that aren't simply, hey, Johnny, grow up, dude. You're 23 years old. You're making millions of dollars a year. Act your age. Because it's a more complex issue than just immaturity. I can only imagine my parents saying to themselves over and over, well, you know, he's 21. He'll, he'll grow out of this. Well, he's 26. He'll move out of the house soon. Well, he's 28. Uh, he should be growing out of this. Well, he's 30. Uh, well, he's 32 and just got a DUI and he's going to commit suicide. Spent the night in a jail cell. Shit, he's probably not going to grow out of this. Probably a more serious issue that needs to be addressed. And before we hear from our interviewee, Kelly, let's hear from our sponsor. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE for $10 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face -face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Kelly, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Paul. Fantastic. I'm so glad to be spending my afternoon with another alcoholic. First off, Kelly, let's get started. How long have you been sober? My sobriety date is June 28th, 2015, so I am about nine and a half months sober. Nice job on that. And before we get further along in the interview, give listeners and tell, tell me, I'm curious, tell, give us a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Kelly? Absolutely. I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I live in Washington State. I work in technology sales. I'm not married. I'm very happily single, and my list of things I do for fun has changed quite significantly since I've become sober, but these days I really enjoy participating in fun runs, getting outdoors. I like paddle boarding. I got a, a road bike last year. Um, I love being near or in the water. I like spending time with my family. I've got a couple nephews. I like watching baseball games. So yeah, I just really like to kind of take advantage of this new life that I have and spend it with the things that make me happy with my friends and, and just feeling good. I love it. And Kelly, let's talk about June 28th, 2015, when your elevator had reached its bottom. Was it a significant moment that made you stop drinking? Or were you just sick and tired of being sick and tired? Talk to me about that. Absolutely. Well, my last day drinking actually started out as a great day, as they all do. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, uh, the day. <laughs> <laughs> Always starts out all right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's how it ends. Yeah. So June 28th, 2015, I woke up that morning and realized that, that the party was over and that I just couldn't, that I just couldn't do it anymore. And part of it was, was based on the events that happened the day before, which started out with me having a great day with my friends drinking on the boat. Then the boat ride was over and it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, I was just still, I was just warming up. And, you know, as many of us alcoholics do, we like to be the last one standing. So everyone else went home and I decided I wanted to continue the party, went out to a casino and stayed there the rest of the night until... My bank account was empty, checking and savings, and all my credit cards had been turned off. 
And I think I put my last $3 I had into a slot machine, and that didn't give me the big win I was hoping for. And I had a bottle of Budweiser in one hand and a Red Bull in the other hand, and I just realized that it was over. And as far as kind of where my elevator was at that point, my elevator really reached rock bottom. It, it had a couple other times. The first time in college in 2002, I realized I had a problem with alcohol. And my school, I had been in trouble a couple times, gotten a few write-ups for discipline. Um, I was sent to a counselor. I revealed that my dad had just died, and they put me through grief counseling, and that uncovered my habits with drinking, and they put me into alcohol counseling. I went to, I think I went to AA a couple times. I hardly remembered. I wasn't very committed. As soon as I got 90 days of sobriety, I said, oh, thank goodness. I'm not an alcoholic. I just got 90 days. There's many of us and do, And yeah. I went back out. <laughs> yep. The next time my, my elevator hit rock bottom, and this truly was rock bottom for me, um, was in 2009. And things had just escalated out of control. I had a series of very short-lived careers, just couldn't hold down a job or do anything very successfully, couldn't save money or, you know, just be financially responsible because drinking and drugs were more of my, my priority. Got a DUI, uh, which really just, you know, when it rains, it pours, it just set me back even more. I just couldn't win, and I couldn't figure out why all these things kept happening to me, not realizing that I was really the source of all these problems. I did manage to luck out and get a, get a really good job that at least got me back on my feet financially. I really wanted to keep that job, so I built a lot of rules around my drinking so that I could you know, be productive at work and try to do the best I could without being too hungover or um, take too many sick days. And it, it wasn't perfect, but I, but I managed to get by. And after about four years, work started to get tough and I started to feel a lot of pressure. And I just started drinking again, really binge drinking again. I had been drinking all along, but it really started to escalate out of control. I started to fear that I would lose my job. It really reminded me of where I was in 2009 when I was at rock bottom. Rock bottom. I could just really feel like all those same things were happening again. And I was so scared of my life getting back to that low, low point that, you know, after I had that, uh, that day out on the boat and that time at the casino, it just, it was just like, all right, this, this really has, this has to stop. This is over. I can't do this anymore. And I've been sober ever since. Kelly, there were some huge value bombs that I just heard. And I wrote some notes down. I'm going to read two of them right now. First one, you said the party was over, a.k.a. the gig is up. And the other one, when you said <laughs> I was the source of all the problems, right there is yeah. key. And it's a lot of times other people tell us the party's over. Like, look, Kelly, the boat tour has ended. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's cut it off. You know, and, and the source of the problems, there's, it's the job. It's the weather. It's the traffic. It's not me. But soon as we admit the party's over, we are the source of the problems. That's when like the rubber can really hit the road and talk to me about, you think that's the difference from June 28th? And you think that's why you've been successful in sobriety so far? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? When I look back and see the difference? Yeah. Well, you, because you were sober for 90 days in 2002. Yeah. Right. But this yes. time you've got some yeah. prolonged sobriety. Do you think it was because you were yeah. the one that said, all right, the party Absolutely. was over. It wasn't somebody yep. else saying like, look, we're going to put you in counseling because your father died. Yep. It was you. 
Absolutely. And, and even, even when, um, even when I got that DUI in 2009 and I was in financial ruin, you would think, you know, you would think at that time I'd be like, okay, Kelly, let's get it together. And I'm sure I tried. I'm sure I, I'm sure I tried to write more rules around it or maybe get a couple days together. I don't even remember it, but it wasn't until I woke up on that day on June 28th, 2015. And I mean, I've I've heard other alcoholics say it before, like a moment of clarity. But I mean, I just I just opened my eyes and I knew that it was over, and it was all my decision. It, and people, you know, had maybe t- suggested it to me in the past, or I've thought about it in the past. But um, one thing I've learned is you really can't help somebody until they're truly ready. It has to be their idea. So it it was it was very very different this time. Absolutely. And can you expand more on that moment of clarity you had on June 28th, 2015? Mm-hmm. Was it something, a similar feeling to hope? It's what I would consider a divine intervention. I mean, I, I woke up and I opened my eyes and I was just like, I knew, I just, I, I knew it was over. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was scared out of my mind. I couldn't even think ahead at all because it would just terrify me, but it was just a feeling, a presence, an awakening. I don't really know how to describe it, but it was, it was undeniable. Fortunately, you don't have to describe it to me because I experienced that same (laughs) divine or whatever you want to call it intervention on September 7th, 2014 myself. And just out of curiosity in 2009, you said you're in financial ruin and you're like, you know, I'm sure I tried. I can guarantee you, you tried really hard because I tried really hard myself to find ways to drink normally. Tell me about some of those plans that just didn't work. Oh my gosh, yeah, I, it's it's funny when I when I finally decided to get sober this time, one of my friends said, "Are you sure? Uh, are you sure you have a problem? Because you've done these, you know, I've seen you do nine day juice fasts and thirty day cleanses and." You know, all these things that I used to do were all attempts to get sober. I've done the juice cleanse. I've done the Whole30. I've done paleo. I've done these fitness programs that don't allow you to drink. I've, you know, just eaten a bag of green beans, a pound of green beans every day for, you know, just done all these crazy diets and fitness fads and all of these things because I felt like, well, if I can't drink as a rule of this program that I'm involved in, then then it will, you know, then it will stick. Then I won't drink. But it, it really never, I really never was able to tie too much time together. Or I would kind of be looking at the clock like, okay, has it been nine days? You know, just like, well, as long as I can drink after this two weeks, you know, I always kind of had that what I consider the light at the end of the of the tunnel, I'd be like, oh, good, I can drink again now. And, and and then I would just undo everything I had just done. Any gains I made in fitness or weight loss, all of that just went out the window because, you know, I was just dumping alcohol on top of anything that I had accomplished. And walk me back to 2002 when your counselors yeah. in college – they, you were written up or something, and they said, you probably have yeah. a drinking problem, according to us, and here's, let's get 90 days. Mm-hmm. What was the disconnect after that? You're like, I got 90 days, I can't be an alcoholic, but was there any time, like from 2002 to 2009, that you're like, wait a second, mm-hmm. maybe they were onto something eight years ago? 
right after college, I became a bartender, and then I did some traveling, and all my intentions of going to law school, becoming a lawyer, getting a career, I just kind of kept putting off. I found a career in outside sales, which, oh man, I know there's a lot of us who choose that as a career path because no one's looking over your shoulder. You kind of run your own business. You can pretty much do whatever you want because no one really is keeping tabs on you. So I spent a lot of time, you know, going out six nights a week. It was no problem if I started my day at, you know, 10 in the morning and finished by three in the afternoon, just found ways to do shortcuts and get the bare minimum done and just really prepare for that call with my boss to say, oh, everything's great. These are all the appointments I went on today. This is everything I did, you know, when in reality, I was just trying to get as much done as I could uh, over the phone or by email, um, just really doing the bare minimum so that no one would know and that I could keep my drinking life as my top priority, but do well enough to where I could still collect a paycheck and stay safe on the career front. So, yeah, I I knew it was probably knew it was still a problem, um, but I had just been very creative in ways to overcome that fear and let the party continue. You mentioned in 2009, you had a lot of short-lived careers. Was that because the drinking, you were let go because of your drinking? Or is it because, you know, you're just, well, you know, this isn't for me. I'm going to go because obviously your priority was drinking. It was both. In one instance, I flat out got fired. And I mean, I had just, I'd gotten just completely busted for not doing my job. Another time I got busted for not doing my job, but was given the option to resign. And then two other times, it was a conversation about, Kelly, you're not really, you're not really enjoying what your, this career path, are you? You're not really into, into this, are you? And I was like, yeah. And then we, we would mutually agree upon a date that I would be exiting. So, because I think people still liked me as a person, (laughs) but you know, they just knew that I wasn't a good fit. I wasn't really a good fit for anything. Well, and at the same time, when you're sticking your your foot in the in the water to see if you like it, and you can't be physically and emotionally present in the moment, you're never going to know. Yeah. That's like grad school is almost like a well, you know, I'll give grad school a try. Then well, that was expensive, you know, experiment. And yeah, had tons of other jobs. Just like, well, I think I want to do this. I think I want to be this. And it wasn't until oh, yeah. yeah, when sobriety came along, I was like, all right, this is at least I can dedicate more of my thoughts and efforts on the what I want to be and. Let's talk about where you're at right now and and your career after almost nine and a half months of sobriety. Yeah. Well, the job that I had that when I decided to get sober, the one that I felt a lot of pressure from, now they say don't make any big changes in your first year of sobriety, but after about a week or two, I I just knew, you know, as you know, getting honest with yourself (laughs) is a huge part of this. And And part of being honest with myself was, no, it certainly is not. And as much as I had appreciated getting that job when I did and, you know, it allowing me to get back on my feet financially, I knew in my heart that if I was to continue what I was doing, I I just wasn't going to be happy. So I actually quit my job and I'm not recommending this, but I quit my job after about uh, two weeks in. And luckily uh, I landed on my feet. I found something else that I can do. I'm pretty good at. I mean, it's not the most fulfilling thing in my life, but it pays my bills. I don't feel a lot of pressure, and it allows me a lot of time to focus on my sobriety, my recovery portfolio, and then my fitness and my health. So I'm kind of easing back in with a more balanced 
life, and I never, I never expected to be this happy, ever. I, I didn't know it was possible to feel so good all the time without it being drinking or drug-induced. I, I really, I, it's, it's like such a gift. It's incredible. Kelly, I know exactly what you're talking about, and especially the line when you said, landing on my feet. There, in sobriety, you were only two weeks sober. In my sobriety, there's been plenty of life hiccups that just happened, bumps in the road. But one thing that's occurring more and more is I'm landing on my feet. I don't really know or have a plan in place. It just happens. But in sobriety, that's usually the end result. Have you seen, have you seen the same in nine and a half months? Oh, my gosh, completely. You know, like when you're drinking – Everything that can go wrong will go wrong, you know, like you're not doing well at work. And then you get a DUI. Yeah, that happened to me too, actually, Kelly. Lawsuit come, <laughs> then a lawsuit comes up that for something that happened several years ago that you didn't even know was a problem. You know, just like all this stuff, you know, quote unquote, happens to you. Um, and, and it's never good. And then it's like the complete opposite in sobriety. I mean, one of my friends who's sober told me like, don't think that it's magic because this is all you, but it's hard not to think it's magic because things will just happen out of thin air that are like, Oh, this is just going my way. And Oh, I lost my keys. And then there they were. And then, Oh, I opened my mailbox and I just got, you know, a $49 refund for something. And it's like all these good things just come into your life that were completely unexpected. And I heard in a meeting once someone call it the cash and prizes. It's the cash and prizes of sobriety, and it's 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 amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna touch upon the lost my keys moment right there. I actually lost my keys about a week ago, and instead of having this rain cloud that just wouldn't stop pouring, and before if I lost my keys when I was drinking, they would they would never be replaced. But like one by one, I made a couple right. calls and got my keys back, and I was like, huh, I landed on my feet. That was pretty easy. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And and Kelly, walk me through a day in your life. Talk to me what your recovery portfolio looks like. Sure. And I I like to keep, you know, just like any good, just like any good investment portfolio, I I like to keep it diversified. So, but I do try to do something every day that is focused on my recovery. So I am in AA and I remember early on when, when I first got sober, the first thing I did actually was find Recovery Elevator. Before I even got off the couch the morning that I had my, my moment of clarity, I was like, oh, I'll just find a podcast. I'll do it this way. Hmm. So I used Recovery Elevator for the first four days. And then actually a friend of mine posted on Facebook that she had one year of sobriety. And I, I sent her a message on Facebook and I said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you posted that. Thank you so much. I actually have four days. Wow, that is um, so powerful, was... those messages. That we don't know we have that power when we post it. All right, keep going. I know. And so she's like, oh, my God, please call me. This is the best gift I could have received for my one year. Please call me. So I called her and she, uh, she was just so happy. And now I can see why she was so happy. But she said, you know, uh, what time is it in, in Seattle? And I said, it's 7.30. She's like, okay, I found a meeting for you. It starts at 8 o'clock. I'm going to text you the address. Your gift to me for my one year is that I want you to go to this meeting. I want you to introduce yourself, and you have to share. Wow. And I was like, oh, man, I, I do not want to do this. I do not want to yeah. do this. Can't I just get you um, a Starbucks gift I, card or something? Yeah. <laughs> right? And I did it. It's, I mean, 
in one of your uh, early episodes, and I'm sure since then you've talked about getting outside your comfort zone, but the visual of what you said popped into my head, which was something like draw a dot on a piece of paper and draw a circle around that dot and then draw a dot like outside that circle. Is, does that ring a bell? Oh, 100%. The drawing's on my wall right now. <laughs> yeah. And outside that dot is, you know, you're outside your comfort zone. And I just, that visual came into my head and I was like, wow, this is really outside my comfort zone. But I, sh- I went to that meeting and I was shaking. I was terrified. And um, it was a different kind of meeting where they start with the people who have under 30 days. Oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> you in a hot seat, Kelly. Um, so they said, Oh, I know, I know, but I didn't know any different because I had never been to a meeting before. So I was the first one, and I just, I don't even know what I said. I just i just told that story, I think, and um, ends up that that night I ended up meeting the person who would become my sponsor, and I met about four or five other women who are my friends to this day and, and I'm still very involved with. So anyway, AA, very important part of my um, portfolio. I know that you've mentioned before you have – Listeners who ask for recovery stories that don't have to do with AA, and I can see why those are harder to find because, trust me, I didn't want to do it. Nobody wants to do it. It just works. So you if, just have to get over it. If you do it, yeah. <laughs> yeah going to a meeting right, and sitting exactly. in a chair, that, that doesn't work. You actually kind of got to do right. what they tell you to do. Exactly, exactly. Following the suggestions definitely helps. So um, AA, my sponsor, I have a gratitude group, little text message gratitude group that we send texts for what we're grateful for every day. My health and fitness is actually a big part of, of my sobriety as well. Got to get those endorphins, get outside, fresh air, taking care of my body, which is another huge gift of sobriety. Um, I remember I used to be really involved in spin classes and I would just sweat Jameson. I could smell it. And wow, working out is so much easier and more rewarding uh, being sober. And then just being, I'm gradually becoming more and more open with people who I work with and my friends. And I recently pretty much came out on Facebook too. And, you know, being open about it and being able to help other people because every time I've been open about it, there's been someone who either has been touched by alcoholism in their life or they feel like they have a problem or might have a problem and they just want to kind of hear a little bit more about my experience. So I feel like, you know, it's this shedding the shame and just stepping out into the light and trying to break the stigma and just helping more people. That's, that's a big part of it as well. And before we started the interview, you mentioned you just finished a half marathon. Did you say that? I did. Um, yeah. My New Year's resolution this year was to do one fun run a month. And so far I have managed to do that. But this last one that I ran was extremely gratifying because I actually ran it with my mom. And it's just like, I mean, so outside the realm of what I thought was possible. I never ran more than a 5k before I got sober. And even then I was just doing it because I'm, you know, strong-willed but now it's something that i i i almost enjoy and yeah. it's just you said so... fun run i'm like wait half marathon that, that's not yeah. a fun run to walk around the yeah, block um, that's fun yeah. it's so cool but the thing i love about you know running the most really has nothing to do with the physical part of it because it hurts i mean it's hard but when you can set a goal and push through the pain 
and accomplish something. And I spend a lot of that time while I'm running thinking about my recovery and how far I've come and what a positive impact it's had on my life and my family and my friendships and my loved ones. Like, I'm just so grateful. It's like, it's just, my heart is just so full. So I really embrace running and races as, as part of this whole process. What do you see that running has done for your mental clarity? Oh my gosh, it's amazing. When, between being sober and, you know, with the physical fitness, it's like kind of back to that, don't think it's magic. Uh, Like I'll walk into a room and forget something and then I'll be like, what was I trying, what was I in here for? And then I'll remember. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be like, oh, this is what, you know, it's not like gone forever like it used to be. Or um, all last year when I was, I, I had just started road biking and I could, never figure out how to shift shift down and get my foot unclipped from the pedal before I stopped. Um, and so I kept falling off my bike. <laughs> and it was okay. really embarrassing. I, and lots of people unless in you don't stop ever. Right, unless you don't stop ever, which has other risks. Um, <laughs> True. And this year I got on my bike and went for my first ride, and it's like my brain just works better. I can think, okay, I'm approaching a stop, and I can shift down unclip my foot from the pedal and get it on the ground without, you know, eating shit in front of an intersection full of cars. It's great. (laughs) Oh yeah. I love it. I love it. And, uh, and Kelly, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, Kelly. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? My worst memory from drinking was very shortly before uh, I quit. I went out for, I I put together a girls' night. I wanted us to all go to dinner and then the art museum. We went out to dinner. One of the girls said, hey, I've got a friend who bartends uh, right down the street. Why don't we just stop for one drink? Well, you know how that goes. So one drink turned into a few. I don't even know what happened. I ended up being forcefully escorted out of the bar, uh, went to another bar and continued drinking. Um, when I was asked to leave that bar, I fell down the stairs. Um, I overreacted and took myself to the emergency room. I called my boyfriend at the time to come pick me up. He picked me up and then broke up with me very shortly after I realized what had happened the next day. Wow. it's like 40 mm. bad memories wrapped into one. Wow. I love it. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Isn't that how they all are? <laughs> no, they, they totally are. Yeah, I love it. And uh, next question, we've all heard that aha moment. Kelly, have you ever had an oh shit moment where you realize you can't control your drinking? Yeah, it was definitely that moment. Um, it was definitely the morning of June 28th when I woke up and I realized I had just lost all my money at the casino. I still had on um, my clothes from last night. Only my shirt was inside out, which I realized I had worn my shirt on inside out the whole night before. And just when my eyes opened and it was just like, oh, shit. Oh, that's it. That's it. And Kelly, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? My plan in sobriety moving forward is um, to really, as, as much as I have sort of mentally resisted this, I know that it's the right thing to do, and that's to get more involved um, with AA. Um, I'm the secretary of my home group, uh, which is a pretty awesome responsibility. I need to continue working the steps. I've been on my fourth step for about seven months. Um, I'm making progress, but it's very slow. 
I just want to continue to help others. I'm already looking into giving a speech at my old college um, at one of those Saturday morning punishment classes for alcohol violations that I seem to attend on a biweekly basis. Nice. Um, That's awesome. And then just, <laughs> yeah, that's a huge goal. And just becoming less compartmentalized with my life. You know, I used to think, oh, okay, my AA friends are over here and my normie friends are over here. And I, I'm just going to break down those walls and I'm just going to be me. And um, no matter no matter what and no matter who, I'm just going to be this one sober, strong, confident version of myself. I love it. And Kelly, what's your favorite resource in recovery? I have so many, um, but I would definitely say it's the people I've met in AA. And because just because if I have a bad day at work and someone gets on my nerves or I want to yell at someone or throw the phone out the window or throw a coworker out the window – you know, which normally would make me just want to have a drink. I mean, I work above a bar, so it's plenty accessible. But when I have those moments, I always have somebody to call. And, um, and yeah, the people I've met through AA are definitely, definitely my greatest resource. And Kelly, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? And then follow that up with what guidance or advice can you give to a newcomer? Yeah, um, the best advice I've ever received, and this is one I continue to remember, is uh, in, your, in early sobriety, if you're in a situation that makes you uncomfortable, you don't have to stick it out. This is not a test. So, I mean, in my first 30 days, I actually ended up back at that casino gambling, and I became very uncomfortable. I could smell alcohol. Oh, I could smell it so strong. My heart was racing, uh, and I, I was there with friends, so I didn't want to leave. And I just should have left. And there's been other times when um, I'm just in a situation where there's a lot of alcohol and drinking and drunkenness, and there's no prize for sticking it out. Just leave. Just get out of there. Your sobriety comes first. And then my advice to someone who's, you know, either in early sobriety or considering it, there's no perfect time to stop drinking. It's kind of like there's, like, when you're trying to think about breaking up with someone and you're like, oh, I can't, I can't stop now because, you know, well, it's Christmas and then Valentine's Day and then, you know, whatever. <laughs> There's never a good time. I quit drinking six days before 4th of July, you know. <laughs> that wasn't Terrible a good time. time. Terrible time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I the time you. to do it is, <laughs> is, is today or right now, or halfway through this day, like the time is now. And looking back, you're always going to wish that you would quit sooner. So just stop. Yeah, that's one of the best quotes I've heard, that today is the best day, and you have the best chances of getting sober due to the progressive nature of this disease. And last, before we depart, yeah. Kelly, give listeners your own personalized, you might be an alcoholic if line. All right, true story. Um, you might be an alcoholic if, you take the beer opener off your keychain and keep it in the console of your car because you realize that you can't open a beer while driving if it's still attached to your keys. Oh, I saw where that one was going. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for being part of my recovery portfolio. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Paul. After interviewing over 65 people for the Recovery Elevator podcast at this point, it's evident that all of our stories are strikingly similar. I've also noticed that people with sports backgrounds have a tougher time getting sober. 
We've got mantras just ingrained in us. Stuff like no pain and no gain. Oh, you can do it. Just keep working harder. And that stuff backfires on us in sobriety. Episode 64, which comes out next week, I talked to Rachel about this. She was a phenomenal swimmer and had a prominent career ahead of her. Oh, and about 20 podcast episodes back, I talk about Steve Sarkeesian. He was the head coach for the University of Washington Huskies. Watching his downfall from the sidelines was also difficult. There were times when he showed up to press conferences drunk, was drunk on the field while coaching a Pac-12 football game. There's 60, 70, 80, 90,000 people in attendance at those games. Coach Steve Sarkeesian, a grown man, he's not growing out of that. And that progression is only going one way, and that's down. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. Johnny, we can do this.